0: Welcome to Foothills Church, Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Harvey Friesen. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Welcome to Foothills. This is the fifth week in our sermon series about storybook endings. We're talking about relationships. Uh, You probably notice in life, if you don't get relationships right, uh, not much else matters. Relationships are important because they're every bit of what you all have or want or wish you had more of. Relationships are a foundation and a bedrock of all of our lives. So we've been teaching on that. Pastor Doug has stood stout in teaching us during these first five weeks about things that really matter. Is your story stuck because you've got unresolved conflict? Uh, Do you have places in your life where you've just said, you know what, I'm not going to work on reconciling. Then he talked about don't be that guy. And then last week man of great courage and notice he 's here not not here this week. Uh, did teach on, don't be that girl. So he's licking his wounds, he started recovering, he's in the bullpen, we'll take care of him later. But today we're going to talk about don't be those parents. We're going to talk about what it means to be a biblical parent and what it looks like to go to the Bible as your source uh, for parenting. I want to give a couple things that you should know beforehand uh, real quick. I'm going to show a video, a little bit of a way through it. It's sort of PG-13, not in terms of what you'll see, but more in terms of what you'll hear, not in terms of words that will be uh, uh, curse words, anything like that but it's a bit PG-13-15, and if you have a kid in the room, you should know that uh, up front. The song that we sung this morning, the last one, it said this, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. Where's your foundation? These sermon series, this is about having a firm foundation in the relationships of our lives, and so Pastor Doug and I and others here in in this church, we preach, believe, teach that a firm foundation is something you want, it's something you need, and if you're building a life with a family, it matters to you as well. I want to say a couple things as well. Well, actually, let me say, say the second one. It says, after that, it says, I will put my trust in you alone, and I will not be shaken. If you want something to put up in your house by your parenting, a little place where you pray, that little place where you, you know, the, it's worn out carpet, and you get on your knees, and you pray, God, it's me again, help. Right. And sometimes your kids go in that place and they put their knees on the ground and go, God, it's my, I'm praying here for my mom today. She needs your help. Right. Parenting is one of those things that is not for the faint of heart. I want to notice a couple things about uh, uh, parenting and, and, uh, and how that approaches us as well. And that parenting can be a great uh, subject, but it can also be a difficult weekend. Look, I know and recognize that Mother's Day and Father's Day are some of the weekends uh, that some of us say, I, don't, I just don't want to go. It hurts too much. Maybe there was too much pain in your past, maybe too much difficulty in how you grew up, or maybe you want to be a mom or a dad and it hasn't happened yet for you. I want you to know I prayed for you this morning uh, because I understand that it can be that difficult moment as well. If you're a grandparent here, or you're an uncle, or you're an aunt, or you're breathing and fogging a mirror, don't check out on this sermon today, okay? Uh, this sermon has some impact in your life as well. If you're a young person in here, hear me on this too. We're going to share some of our parenting secrets, and you're going to see why we mess up the way we mess up. Uh, we're going to talk about it in honest and real terms. So this morning, we're going we're to do that. Before we do it, I want to ask God's prayer, uh, blessing over it, so bow your heads with me for a moment. And I'm going to pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, come and do your work in our midst. Be unafraid. We're telling you, as though you really would be, but we want you to hear, be be unfettered in your work in our hearts and in our lives. We open ourselves up to you today that you would teach us and grow us in something that scares us, worries us, concerns us, lots of other things. Father, we ask that grace uh, that you would pour it out through your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to be the first to welcome you this week to the week of Christmas. Merry Christmas to all of you. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas week. I bought all of my gifts in September for my family. We're going to open them up on Thursday. It's going to be a fantastic celebration. You guys aren't... The world around us told me that we should just skip Thanksgiving. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention or whatever, but the world around us says that this Thursday should be overlooked or we should feel really terrible about the fact that we thank God and we put together a turkey and we do all those kinds of things. Hear me on this. Don't follow the garbage of our world. It is Thanksgiving and it is a time to stop and say we are grateful and we are grateful for so many blessings deep, far and wide. The culture around us is already worrying about what they're going to buy and how they're going to get it. Let me give you an idea, Okay, you ready? You already have enough. That's right. Okay. One of the funniest things of where I where we came from in Colorado is that the the Costco, they built this huge cell storage right behind Costco. And I thought. That's the most amazing economics lesson you could imagine. I took my kids over there and I said, I wanna teach you what a balance sheet means, okay? Here's what it is. Costco has a balance sheet and they sold it to you and now you store it in this place and it's now on your balance sheet. And in their balance sheet, it's an assay and on your balance sheet, this is a liability. Hear me on this, Christian families, don't be this. Don't buy things you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't like. Okay? Don't do that. Don't do that. The world around us is doing all of that. When you buy an intentional gift, it may be $5 or $5,000. Buy that gift with the idea that God gave us gifts through his son, through his spirit, and that you're reflecting that, not helping the GDP. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right, first parenting. We can finish right here, right now. Just do that, and you'll be great parents. Let's pray. I would stop, but I get paid by the word. So I'm going to continue this morning in that. So parenting is one of those things where if you are a parent, one of the things that you should know is this, is that you should feel phenomenally inadequate and you should feel phenomenally set up for the fact that God intended you to feel inadequate in and of yourself. Hear me again. In and of yourself, you are inadequate you feel it already, you think it, whoever that spouse is that you're married to knows that about you already, that you're not up for it. You're not up for the challenge. You don't have what it takes. And that is part of the idea why the teaching about how to be a parent in the Bible is written the way it is because God is saying, you should hear me. They're my kids, not yours. Look with me in the text. Let's go straight into it. In Ephesians chapter 6, Pastor Doug's been preaching out of Ephesians 4. Look what it says. And by the way, you should take some great comfort that one of the big teachings in the New Testament about parenting starts out with talking to the kid, not to the parent. We don't think that way, but it does. Look at it. It says, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, some of you are going, wait, 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 you're telling me, I've been saying they're my kids all along, they're God's kids, no wonder they're spoiled rotten, no wonder they didn't turn out the way they should, you're saying they're God's kids, they are God's kids, but they're your privilege as well, and they're your blessing, and my blessing, and our blessing, Shadley and I have four children, 14 up to 26 and we are blessed for the fact that we are part of their lives. But hear me on this and understand. Parenting starts with this belief that children are called by God to obey them because he belong, they belong to him and him first. That's a fundamental truth that we should understand. For this is the right thing to do for children to obey the Lord. Here's the idea is that rebellion is really, really cute. And revolution is really, really nice. And there are places and times where all that happens. There is. But a rebellious heart is the first way to lead your, your faith and your life into a bankrupt scenario. Look at verse 2. It says, honor your father and your mother. Talking again to the kids, honor, and father, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment that comes with a promise. One of the things to understand is that fathers and mothers will give an account. And it says this, if you honor your father and your mother, things will go well for you. Things will go well for you. Now, I know, and I want to just say this up front. Sometimes when I, when I preach or Pastor Doug preaches or whatever, one of the things that stirs around in your deconstructionist world and your deconstructionist heart is, well, I got some terrible parents. So you're telling me that I should be honoring those people, okay? Just so you understand, they try their best. That's what I've come to believe. Parents try their best. In fact, it says in Hebrews 13 that parents try their best. Now, there are surely some that go off the rails, but if you need me to solve every malady of the world so that you don't, we don't ever get to te- teaching and preaching about parenting, then I might as well stop, right? Tune out that thought that not all parents are worthy of honor, not all parents are worthy of being blessed by their kids, and tune in this thought. God intended that the home would be this place where goodness happens and blessing flows. God intended that, and there is a way to get back to that. If you're a parent with little ones, or large ones, or short ones, or whatever ones, and all like that, this sermon should speak to you at every place you're at, if you'll be open, not to me, but to the words of God. Look at verse 4. Then when it goes into parents, if you're a mom, you got to love this, the first thing that God addresses is the dads, because we're schmucks, and we know it. I mean, right? I mean, and the Bible starts in, and he says, he looks at the dads, and he says, fathers, Here's what's going to feel right to you, okay, you ready? Do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. The first thing he says is, Dad, you're going to be frustrated. That is not how you parent. That's not the way to go. Dads get what? Angry and happy. Moms understand 50 words between angry and happy. Are you frustrated or are you worried? Are you concerned? I'm angry right now and I want to be happy, Right? Along the way, the first thing that God says is, you parent like this, it will not work. Do not parent from the deficit of anger, parent from, the, parent from the proactivity of God's truth and God's words. Instead, he says, rather, bring them up with the discipline, and this notion is the disciplines. We want to go right away to discipline. Yeah, that's a part of it, but this, these are the disciplines that that kid needs raise them up or t- uh, bring them up with the discipline and the instruction that comes from what? The culture. The, what my friend said down at the bowling alley while we were out there smoking a cigarette. What well, my, you know, when that, no, from the Lord, from the Lord. He says, train them up in the way from the Lord. So if you're me and I'm sitting out there like you, I'll go and go, okay, well, what is God's way of doing that? I don't know about your parenting or your childhood as a kid, but I grew up in Humpty Dumpty land, Humpty Dumpty. All the king's men and all the uh, king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. My family growing up was Humpty Dumpty, man. We fell off the wall early and we fell off that wall often. There were eggshells everywhere in our little world. And by the grace of God, I was willing to, at some point in my life, I came to the learning of the Lord. And it changed my life. I took a class called family in college before I would even have the courage to ask Shally to marry me because I didn't have a clue as to what family looked like. I had no idea. I thought family was, you just make sure that the old guy doesn't get too mad and too mean and hit you. Stay out of his swath. That's what I thought. So we all start somewhere, okay? So let's start with this. Let's go into the word of God and see how it was. And we should go back to the, in the Old Testament, uh, Back to Hebrew, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter six. Deuteronomy chapter six. And you've got, oh, by the way, I put a handout out there for you. I put it on on the seats. That handout is for you. We're gonna go through that. And some of you are going, wait, we're just at the handout now? Oh my goodness. Well, hang on, we'll keep moving. Um, If you're online, by the way, the handout's on the website. All you gotta do is click on the PDF that's up there and you can download it and have it to go through as well. We made a handout for you in the crowd just so that you could take it home. Because the idea is this, you're in the game Here's a playbook that one family used that comes off of the Bible that maybe might encourage you in how you parent or grandparent or how you are as an uncle or how you are as an aunt. The Jewish family, hear me on this, the Jewish family reads through this nearly every Friday, okay? An observant Jewish family will read through it, and it's called the Shema. And the Shema is for one word. It literally is slang almost, and it means this, hearing, the hear, hear this. Okay? In other words, shh, pay attention to this part. Here's the hearing in the Jewish book. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Notice these three words, commands, decrees, and laws. So that you, sorry, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear, which means the word for revere, respect, The Lord, your God, as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. One of the blessings that we should understand is, is that God's model of parenting was built off the idea of blessing and that it would last, blessing and that it would last. So the idea wasn't just a short-term fix. Uh, The idea wasn't just doing it for a little while. The idea was, is that this is how, catch this, we do life. This is not a parenting class. This is how we do life. Remember in their time and age, they did not get 77 years and 78 years and however many years. For them, a long life was a true blessing of God. Look look at verse 3. Hear Israel, there's the word Shema, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Notice this, is that he's doing this before they go into the land of Israel, and he tells them in advance, that land you're going to flows with milk and honey. Parenting has a lot to do with that idea of milk and honey. It's out there, and it could be really good But notice this, you still have to be a part of the harvest and you still have to be a part of the hard work to actually get the milk and honey. It's not like just the milk was sitting in a jug and the honey was sitting in a jar and they showed up and went, wow, it is land of milk and honey. Okay, That's how sometimes we look at parenting. It should just happen. It should just be there. That is not how it works. God says, I want you to be involved in this. I'll give you a little story to that. There was a farmer who had a piece of ground. The new pastor was in town. He went out to visit the, pa- uh, the farmer and he met the farmer and the farmer had this beautiful farm, had eight feet tall uh, corn, had five feet tall cotton, had a beautiful vegetable garden, had cows and horses and all these beautiful things. And the pastor sort of trying to, you know, say something spiritual, looks at the farmer and he says, man, Farmer Jones, you and God have done a great job here. And rightly so, the farmer says, well, before you give God too much credit, you should have seen what it looked like when he had it to himself. (laughs) You're invited to a wonderful participation. God has laid the ground in the groundwork. He's given the seeds. He's given the water. He's given all the blessings. He's given the sunshine. He said, hey, let's grow something great together. Okay, together. Look at verse 4. There's a slight turn that happens in the verse here, and this is the word, the Shema. This is, again, the Hebrew word, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what that's saying in in Hebrew is, the Lord is Jehovah. You know what Jehovah means? He is the supreme God. He is the foundational God. One of the greatest temptations as parents is to do this, is to parent by the principles of lesser gods. To parent by the principles of lesser gods. One of the temptations we have is to not acknowledge the great God of the universe who's the one who gave us the rods and cones in our eyes, the ones who gave us the feeling in our hands, the ones who gave us a body that we can go use and go to work and do different things with. Instead of that, what we want to do is we want to worship the creation rather than the creator. A lot of times what we do is we get so focused on this anything in front of our face that we miss the God who is the source. That word there for one is the notion of he is the sovereign source of everything good in your life. So the beginning of parenting starts with the idea that it was God's idea and it is God's universe and it is God's children that you and I have been given the privilege of being a part of their lives. Now, what do we do with them? Look at the next verse, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. He looks at the parents first and how here's the parent teaching. Remember the New Testament started with the kid teaching? The Old Testament starts with the parent teaching. He says, love God with your heart, with your soul, and with your strength. In other words, don't give God half-hearted love. And before you're too hard on God, that's exactly how we feel about it, right? Name the three best half-hearted relationships you have, and I'll tell you, you don't have friends, you have acquaintances. Name the best three half-hearted people that work for you, and I'll tell you, you don't have people that are accomplishing. You have people that are picking up a check, right? If God wants all of this from us, we shouldn't be surprised by it because you know what? Lo and behold, we want the same thing. How many of us tolerate people that work for us that give a half-hearted effort? The first beginning of parenting, here's a lesson. Ready? Give it all. Give it all. I love to play golf. I love to play golf. I could hit the ball a long way. I preached like I drive the ball off the tee, okay? Long to the left and always near a hazard, all right? Long to the left and always near a hazard. I gave up golf because you know what? I'd rather be with my kids and my family because I knew at the right time I could pick up those sticks again, but I couldn't pick up those kids again. I knew that there was a long game I was in, not just a short game that I was in, and I knew it required everything I had. Again, It's not about whether you play golf or not. It's about whether you're engaged in your kids' lives or not. Verse 6, look what it says. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. We learn with our heads. We believe it and put it into our lives through our hearts. And then we embody it through our hands. God says in this process, parenting is not a head game. It's a heart game. It's not just knowing what to do, it's actually putting your heart into it so that you actually will do it. You know one of the things that's most significant is I don't care how old your kids are, but wherever they're at in that phase, they know this. They know if your heart is for them or not. They can sense it. They can sense when something's wrong in your relationship. They can sense when something's bothering you. They can sense so amazing kinds of things. So I don't care, I'm talking about when they're little, like hold them here and hold them here and hold them here. They know when it's going on. If you think your kids don't know what's going on in your real relationship and that, it, that, that they don't know the affinity of your heart, you are lying to yourself. They know. They know. Look at the next verse impress them on your children. You can't give away what you don't own for yourself. Once you do own it for yourself, put that into the lives of your children. Impress it upon them. When do you do it? Okay, we're going to have a Bible study at four o'clock and everybody's going to show up. And you guys probably remember a few months ago when I talked a little bit about this topic. One of the things I talked about is if you're waiting for the perfect time to ever study the word of God with your family, you can never, you will never have that time. Right? At our house, whenever we open up the Bible, is the moment that some kid farted and some kid sneezed and some kid blew a booger and another kid went, ah, and another kid, do we have to do this? And you, ready? Hear me, parent? Keep going. Keep going. Right? Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. The point of it is this you are always teaching the Irish word for home in the old Irish was teach. What's that building for? Teach. That's what it means. If you signed up for parenting, right? If you did your part and she did her part and everybody got excited and that little thing showed a color, you just signed up to be a teacher for a long time. Okay. That's called parenting, right? And it says we teach in all those situations here in a little bit, I'll, give you a, I'll show you how we did it. In fact, I'm going to just jump ahead. Take that piece of paper I gave you, turn to the back, and look on there. It's the second section down. And on the second section down, it says, note. Here's how the Friesen family did it. Okay? Here's how we imparted that. Not this one, but when you go a little bit further, you'll see there's a a thing called note. And where it says note, it says this. The Friesens use sports, being in nature, academics, games, serving others. Games a lot, by the way. Uh, Travel, material world self-governance. You know what material world self-governance is? It's my fancy $5 word in your sermon today. And you know what it means? We taught our kids the difference between needs and wants. It's the most amazing thing to to watch a six-year-old go, but I need it. Listen, you're in for it, right? It's already Christmas in their mind. They forgot about Thanksgiving. I need it. We taught those things through those kinds of things, needs and wants, and cross-cultural mission trips, and we use those as vehicles to deliver values. Ask you a question. How do you deliver values in your life? How do you deliver values in your family? What are the proactive things that you're doing to instill those values? They're watching. This is a great way to do it. All right, let's get back to the verses on the front. We're going to push fast towards the future here. Verse 7 said, impress your children, impress them on them wherever you go. Verse 8 says this, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. In other words, have them all about you. And then the next verse is, I think this is the Joanna Gaines version verse of the Bible. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, right? So, sh- so the idea was this, is put those values all over your house. Because your house is a place where you do what? You teach. You teach. So, the, down at the bottom of the front page, you can just run along with me real quick, but there's an important set of things I want you to know from number one. Look at number one here. My first point I want to make to you out of the first verse, and this is the basis of all Jewish teaching it's the Jewish model of parents and grandparents. Grandparents, you have a voice in the game, not a noise, not a nose, but a voice. Okay? No one's nose is so pretty it looks good in somebody else's parenting. Fair enough? No one's on the house, by the way. We're here all week. Uh, Parental influence flows in three observances in the Jewish model. The first one was they taught their children the commands. There are 613 commands in the Old Testament. They taught their children those mitzvahs. And what those became are the morals. So he's saying, teach three things to your kids. Commands, which are morals. Decrees, which is wisdom. Laws, which are natural and spiritual laws. In other words, what they said was, give your kids a full rounding. Hear me on this. Church is a place where your kids are getting uh, an opportunity to learn all those things. We are not here just teaching morals. We're not a moral factory. Morals in a vacuum make no sense in a real world. You can have the best morals you want to have in the whole world. But if you don't know how to turn a screwdriver, you might not get a job. Okay? You can have the best morals in the world, but if you don't have any practical wisdom about how to do life, you may not get a job. You may have all the morals in the world, but you don't know how to do something, and you will not make your way in life very well. The Jewish family taught all these things. When you're parenting, it's all this. They need your morals, but they need your wisdom. They need your wisdom. They also need you to understand that there are natural and spiritual laws, and how are we facing those? I'll give you a simple one. Spend less than you make. They're gonna learn that from you or they're not gonna learn that from you, all right? Teach them all these things. And when we're teaching them all these things, there's a powerful thing coming, you ready? We're teaching them the Shema. And the Shema is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord is our God. He is the supreme being of the universe. He has the source for every truth we need to go make our lives. All those natural laws, the laws of gravity, the, law, the laws of transmutation, all the different, the laws of third and dynamics, those were God's ideas. Our children excelled in science. Our children excelled in mathematics. Our children excelled in all those kinds of things. We live in a world that says that science and math are now some form of racism. How crazy land is that? Let me give you a little history for a moment, okay? About 50 years ago, there was a parenting model that came out and it got pushed and pushed and pushed. And you know what that model was? It's called child-centered parenting. Yes, I might be fired tomorrow for bringing that up. (laughs) Child-centered parenting. You know what child-centered parenting is? It's this basic idea. The kid is the center of the universe. Everything revolves around them. And so what we do is we go, everything is for this and we do this and this and we help and help and help. It creates jealousy in marriages Because one of the spouses can sometimes feel like, wait a minute, I thought I was the one that was special in your life. No, Johnny's the best and he's the greatest and he's the most wonderful. No wonder off of child-centered parenting 50 years later from now, this week in Yale's newspaper, there was a student who's in a class of 25 who felt victimized because of the effects of the time change last week and he didn't get enough sleep. He said that. It was in the paper. A kid filed a formal complaint that he felt victimized by time change. Someone help me. I mean, someone help me here for a minute. Victimized by time change? We have built a world filled with this notion that the world revolves all around me, and what we've done is we've created this great big narcissistic pile that says, no me, no me, no me. The Hebrew world taught this, no God. No God. And God is the center of the universe, and God in his supreme thoughts and ideas gave mute us as your parents, and we are going to seek his wisdom and seek his truth and seek his ideas so that we would know how to walk in who you are. I've given you that paper. You can take it home. If you want to do a parenting course or a class or a few things, my wife and I'd be happy to, not because we figured it out, but because we're willing to say it's worth the effort to learn how to do this and to keep trying and to keep trying and to keep trying. These three things are so vitally important. Your kid needs a full education. This was used to be called a classical education. It's the notion of learning with all the things because morals need wisdom because wisdom knows when to appropriate morals and how we appropriate morals. And wisdom is subject to natural laws. And that is is this, is that this is gravity. If you do this, it will blow up your life. Don't do this. The 10 commandments included four very important spiritual natural laws, which are what? Don't be a thief, be honest. Don't commit adultery, have fidelity in your life. Don't be a liar, you need to be straightforward with people. Why? Cuz your life depends on it. The three things that break everything in life are the ones that break those spiritual laws right there. Teach them to your kids and make sure you teach them the more reason why You're teaching it. Don't just say, because I said so. Say, because the source, the creator, the God of the universe, Jehovah, he, the supreme one, said, this is the tolerance for your life. God, the great engineer, said, here are the specs on how to do life. Okay? I've written some things for you. Turn over to the back of your page. You can look at those last things uh, down there, and I'll come back to some of it again here in a minute. But I want you to see this. So the guy that's mentored me for 32 years now is a guy named Jerry Slater, wonderful man of God. He is an engineer, and I was sitting down with him, and this is a true story. Shadley and I were married for about two years, and two or so years into marriage, I actually may have been two and a half years, something like that. But two and a half, three years into our marriage, I wrote a theological paper for why we should not have children. Straight up, I did. I heard an, oh, man, over here. Like, wow, and you're still married? How did that work? No, I did. I wrote a theological paper. I said, we have enough people in the world. You know the first commandment of the Bible, right? Go forth and multiply. Everybody seems to be obeying that one. (laughs) I mean, I wrote in there, the plumbing works. We got kids. It's all out there. Why don't we love somebody else's kids a little bit? I wrote this great big theological paper, gave it to my wife. I thought, man, this is going to go over really well. She looked at me and she goes, I don't know who you are. You look like my husband. You need to go find him, bring him back. Because he's the one that said we're going to be parents someday. And I joined him because part of the deal was we were going to be mom and dad. I literally wrote a paper. You know why I wrote that paper? I was scared to death. Dad's honestly, right? I mean, when our first child was born, I showed up at the, I mean, I was there. My mother-in-law was there. I mean, you get this in the room. My wife grew up on an agriculture environment, right? So they birthed horses and cattle and all those kinds of things. My father-in-law and mother-in-law are sitting in there. My wife is, you know, about to have a baby, you know, about to have a baby. And I'm sitting there and my mother-in-law looks at me like, you better not faint, you better be a man. Ren. right now is the time where you're going to show you're going to be that guy, right? I remember sitting in that room and going, wow, what are you going to do? When my kid is born, I literally showed up and I had a little, you know, one of my business cards. And I said, hey, kid, I'm your dad. Here's my phone number. Feel free to call me when you need something. I'll see you in about five or six years. That's how you feel, right? It's like, I, what do I bring to the table? Now, that is not, hear me on this. I'm joking with you. That is not how I parented. Jerry Slater said to me this, he said, Harv, he's, he's a mathematician, he's an engineer, and he said, let me graph for you parenting. I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, do it, graph it. So he graphed it out. I went, okay, let's see it. So here this one is, this is the level of intensity, and these are the ages, right? Notice there are some very important ages, 7, 13, 18, and 25, very important ages. And then he said this, he said, the perceived need of your kid is going to be like this. I said, okay, what is it? By the way, eight kids, right? So he's been in the game a little bit. He said, for the first seven years of your kid's life, their greatest perceived need is going to be security. That's it. They're going to need to be safe and cared for and loved and all those kinds of things. And by the way, you're down here on this end, this blue line represents you. You are a part of that whole security, but they're going to look to her mainly because she's going to have that sense in her about what security looks like. Now, before you write me letters, before you hammer on me, before you do all this, remember I preached in Boulder for 30 years and I've talked about this in Boulder. So I've heard people really mad at me before, okay? I'm not speaking of these things in isolation. I'm just saying this, he said, security is their first greatest need and they have an affection need and the influence of your other mom is so much greater. And then at seven, what happens is, is you wake up or they wake up to you and they go, hey, what's that guy? He smells bad, he makes these weird sounds, He's, you know, kind of gross and all like that. But the woman puts up with him. So, hey, who are you again? Oh, yeah, you're my dad, right? And he says, here at this point, what's going to happen is is that your kid's need for independence is going to start to grow. And your kid's perceived need of security is going to start to diminish and in this 7 to 13 period, they're going to go from being concrete thinkers to being conceptual thinkers. And in this period of time, there's going to be a war wage for their minds. And that war wasn't social media at the time, but there was technology and there were cell phones and there were friends. And they're going to try to pinch you out at every level. And notice this. He said, here's what's going to happen. You're both going to have been in the game, but here's what's going to happen. Your kids are going to start this run up. And mom and dad are going to be standing right here in the middle. And the kids are going to say, you know what? I, I, I want to be free. I want to be independent. I know everything. I'm 13 years old. And the dad is all of a sudden going to become a little bit more of an expert because they're going to look at the dad and they're going to go, wow, my perceived need of autonomy and independence. And dad, when I leave the house, goes, break a leg. And when I leave the house and mom looks at me, she goes, be careful. Call me. Where are you going to be? Is it going to be all right? Is everything okay? And in your marriage... That's a really important moment. That's a really big day. Guys, you're not on the bench. It's just that your perceived need or their perceived need for what you bring to the table is really low. All of a sudden, here, that goes down. Moms, hear me on this. When this happens, they're not rejecting you, they're just affirming this one thought. They're God's kids more than they're yours. You're gonna love them and get this, they're gonna leave. And that hurts. Believe me, I know. I've been at that door and I've said to my wife, they aren't gonna look back. They aren't, I'm telling you, it's gonna hurt, but they're not gonna look back. Keep waving, keep smiling. I'm here with you. Okay? This transition right here is so important, and I wanna tell you why it's so important. The world around your kids is after them right here. I sound scared. I'm not scared. I want you to hear me. I'm not afraid. I'm not anything like that, but I'm telling you this I'm gonna earn the right to be a good, meaningful, purposeful voice that loves them and cares about them right in here, okay? Right in here. Some of you are down here. Some of you are out here. Some of you are all over the board. I don't know where you're at in all of your stages and ages of your kids, but I want to say this is is that this part right here is where it all comes together. And this part right here is where you need her and you need him. And they both play an important, vital role, Here's the video, not meant to scare you, but I want you to understand what people are thinking about your kids. And when he first starts out, by the way, he says the word "minor attracted persons." Listen.: Thank you So much for that question. Um, I use the term "minor attracted person" or "MAp" uh, in the title and throughout the book for multiple reasons. Um, first of all, because I think it's important to use terminology for groups that members of that group want others to use for them, um, and map advocacy groups like before you act. Um, have advocated for use of the term MAP. Um, They've advocated for it primarily because it's less stigmatizing than other terms like pedophile. Uh, A lot of people, when they hear the term pedophile, they automatically assume that it means a sex offender, uh, and that isn't true, and it leads to a lot of misconceptions about attractions toward minors. Um, I've definitely heard the idea that you brought up, though, that the use of the term minor-attracted person suggests that it's okay to be attracted to children. Uh, But using a term that communicates who someone is attracted to doesn't indicate anything about the morality of that attraction. So it's okay if I'm attracted to your kids. That should be normal to you. Let's call it minor attracted persons. You go look at the definition. The definition of the word pedophile is the definition is this, attracted sexually to children. But the world around you is saying, oh, let's change the terms. Let's change the words. I'm just attracted to your kids. That's all. I'm not a pedophile. I just just really like your kids. That's the world you're challenged with. That's the world I'm challenged with. Am I afraid of that? No. I'm not afraid of that at all. Why? Because I wanted to have earned the voice in my kids' life to be there when they hear this garbage. This guy's an Old Dominion University professor. He's a professor and he's saying he's teaching those people that are teaching our kids who are teaching the teachers that teach our kids. And he's saying, this is what we need to do. Change the terminology. It'll be more acceptable. Really? Guys, there's a lot on the line with your kid. Don't be afraid. Be engaged. Don't be scared. Get involved. Stay in that game. Let's go back to my graph for just a minute and we're going to head to the close here. In this place, it's so vitally important. And in this, what we see is is dads, don't check out here. Moms, don't check out here. But understand something. And Shelly and I have talked about it a little bit. There have been wonderful little blessings along the way. But what I noticed was that as we tried to employ this idea, it was right about 19 that things came together really well. You know what happens after 19? Our kids all went off to college, right? And you get off there and you see what? You see how all the other kids were parented. You see how all those kids who were taught all these laws and morals and like that get out to college and go crazy and don't even show up for class and drink till their liver about falls out of their side, right? But enough about my first year. No, I'm kidding, that was not me, that was not me. (laughs) Played baseball, we weren't allowed to drink, honestly, right? But you know what happens in here is that this kid has this realization. I'm gonna become an adult. And I'm in, you know and i was really hard on him and i was really hard on her but man you know they taught some really pretty good things parent for the right reasons teaching the morals the wisdom the spiritual and natural laws of god and recognize you may not get a thanks for a long time but it's okay stay in the game keep after it keep doing it keep plowing keep going forward Do not give up. I've shown you on this piece of paper the plan that the Friesens had. Right, wrong, or indifferent, we had a plan. And here's what our plan was, and I'll show it to you real quick right here, is that, again, you find your own numbers, you find your own plan, but here's what we did. Zero to five, we were instilling self-disciplines and a moral warehouse. We were teaching them personal agency and the ability to say, I have my own space, that person matters, I matter, and my family matters, and our neighbors matter. During that period of time, we spent a lot of time talking about right and wrong, not from a conceptual thought, but we learned on the small places, right? Playtime and games and sports and fun activities together. From six to 10, it moved to being a training table, training in life, interpersonal skills, the application of the moral warehouse. Before we would go over to your house, one of the things that we would do instead of going over to Kurt and Amy's house and just showing up and my kid walking in like I did walk in, hey, how you doing, Mr. E, good to see you, and walk right up to the fridge and pull out, you know, a cold 7-Up or whatever and sit down. We thought it might be good to train them what social graces look like. You see where I'm going with this, right? So here we're instilling the warehouse of self-discipline and personal agency. Here what we're talking about is how we train them for that. Hear me on this, dads, this is where we mess up. We We get angry with our kids when they do disrespectful things to other people when we haven't really ever taught them how to do it the right way. That's called setting your kid up for failure. Dads, Being part part of the game, sit down with them. We would do this. You know what we do? We'd set up a whole table. We'd put all the knives and the forks out and all those kinds of things. And we'd say, thank you very much, Mr. Brigham, for having us over. It was really good to have a meal with you today. Shake them at the hand, look them in the eye. That's how we start to learn to be a person that can interact with other people. I know this is controversial. We weren't raising kids. We were raising adults who happen to be kids. Because they're going to be adults but we knew how to play and we had a fantastic time playing And 10 to 13. What happens? You Remember where we're at in the graph? Don't go to the graph, but you remember where we're at in the graph from 10 to 13 to 15. We're coaching them as they grow as social beings. We're talking with them about bringing technology or not bringing technology. And we're talking about the notion of real friends versus the notion of illusionary Instagram friends. We're talking about the notion of having a real relationship versus just a perception. And you know what's going on during all this period of time too is all those hormones are rushing and flashing and doing like that. And we're coaching them along the way, the boys and the boys and the moms the dads and the boys and the moms and the daughters and we're talking about it in normal, meaningful ways and we're talking about how babies are made and how life was made because why Jehovah God is the source of all good, great things and he gave us those morals and we didn't just teach him what not to do, catch this, we teach him what to do. The teaching on premarital sex is not, uh, the teaching on sex is not no, the teaching on sex is not now. Not now. And at the right moment, when you do it according to the morals and wisdom and truth and spiritual and physical laws of of nature and God, then what happens is, is then that becomes a great big yes. Yes. You see how we're teaching that and moving that? Then 13 to 15, it's coaching, consulting, and friendship. Here's how the world does it. You ready? The world wants to be friends with zero to five-year-olds. Oh, they're just so great and they're fantastic. You ever seen a parent negotiate with a three-year-old in the mall? And you're like, I know there's a parent in here somewhere, okay? It doesn't happen here. You're instilling self disciplines and moral warehouse, et cetera. The world says start out with friendship. Then, if a friendship doesn't work, then, well, you know, kind of coach them a little bit. And if coaching doesn't work and, all, and nobody wants you to have you over at their house anymore because you keep going in the fridge and stealing all the food and acting really rude and going into your bedroom and throwing stuff out of the drawers and you like that, well, then what we do is we go, okay, friendship. And then we're going to do that here. We're going to be six to 10. We're going to try to be able to coach them. And then, when that doesn't work, then we try to be, come back in here and we go, okay, I'm going to train you a little bit. And then at 13, when that hasn't worked we instill discipline i'm going to tell you something if you're starting with disciplines and moral warehouse at 13 you lost game's over game's over tear up the scorecard. walk off the field talk to the guy in the microphone maybe next year maybe next kid guys god gave us an idea about how to do that i want you to see a couple more quick things When God's, look at this next one, when God's morals, wisdom, and natural truths are obeyed, what we get is this, here's what you're after, ready? This gives you the inherent moral why. The goals of our parenting, when we teach commands, decrees, and laws, is that they turn into character, competence, and confidence. You know what my greatest goal is and was for my daughter's? that they would have a healthy self-worth uh, and self-esteem and confidence and that I would show them what male, non-sexual affirmation and touch and meaning and love means so that when they meet up with guys out there, they're not lacking confidence. They don't need him to make her feel good about herself. She feels good in and of herself. And, and one of the great things that I, I'm not bragging, believe me, we got bumps, bruises, warts, blisters, all that stuff, okay? Come hang out, you'll see him. But one of the best things I always thought was, is that my daughters were always friends with all the guys because they weren't, they didn't need their affirmation. They were just friends with all the guys. The weird part for me was, is that all the girls were intimidated by that. We want them to have character. We want them to be competent. We want them to be confident. And I can tell you this, the world will always want to hire those people. They'll want to meet those people. They'll want to marry those people. They'll want to be around those people. They'll want to be a part of those people's lives. Because why? Because that is the substance that we are after. And it comes from Jehovah God. I love and appreciate the Jewish culture because they teach this nonstop. And it is a part of the rhythm of all their family and life. I've gone on a little long here for you today, but it's because this matters. Where to start? Down at the very bottom of the second page, Luke chapter two, verse 52. I don't care where you are, and you don't have to employ any of the things that I've said today, but here's how we prayed for our kids and have prayed for them throughout their lives. In Luke chapter two, verse 52 says this, Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and favor with people there are four things that you want for your kid to grow in. You want them to grow intellectually. You want them to grow physically. You want them to grow spiritually. And you want them to grow relationally. Because when they're grown in all those ways, they will be healthy emotionally and they'll be prepared to go live life. Is it perfect? No. Is it easy? No. Is it straightforward? Yes. And here's what you need to know. Last thing, okay? Every person in this church has a role in the lives of the body of Christ to be encouraging parents, to be blessing parents, to be blessing kids, to be walking along with them, teaching them, standing with them, advocating for them, saying, this matters, this matters, because the world out there is not doing that. They're going, give us your children's innocence, and we need to be the ones that say, no, 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 hold on. That's God's, and God's alone first. Amen? Amen. Amen. May we walk that way. Thank you for letting me share the Christ uh, teaching on this with you. Thank so. you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.